Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series that tries to bring European history, culture, and civilization to bear on problems of contemporary EU politics. The problem that we are going to uh, deal with today is perhaps the problem of the problems, something that affects the, the life of uh, everybody uh, in, the, in, in Europe and probably in the Western world, because it is the state of health of our democracies and uh, the future prospects of representative democracies in, in Europe, particularly, but more broadly in, uh, in the West. Um, I am going to discuss that with um, a friend and a guest that I am uh, honored and pleased to have uh, here on the platform, and that's uh, Carlo Invernizzi Acetti, Professor of Political Science at New York uh, City College. Welcome, Carlo. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so the occasion, uh, just for listeners to know of our chat about the, the current state of health and the future of democracy, is a new book that you have published this year. Um, you have co-authored it with uh, Christopher Bickerton, and um, it has been published with Oxford University Press, and the title is uh, sort of telling enough. It is Techno-Populism, the New Logic of Democratic Politics. And since the title, Carlo, you um, immediately pick up on two of the um, drivers of the democratic malaise that we have been experiencing over the last, uh, well, really, few decades, although it has intensified over the last decade, uh, technocracy and populism. Now, there has been no shortage of um, analysis of how the two somehow um, impoverished the quality of Western democracies, uh, but they are normally seen as opposed to each other, or even as antidote, as counterbalancing each other. You know, technocracy and populism are opposites. This is the, the, the normal narrative. In a way, some, some authors have argued we've had too much technocracy over the last few decades, you know, too much rule by experts and international institutions. And this provoked a backlash, a populist backlash, or others say, no, on the contrary, you know, we need a degree of uh, um, expert rule of policy areas that are insulated from democratic politics in order to guarantee the long-term stability of uh, outcomes and, and policy goals. But I think one of the novelty or the novelties of your argument is that it's the first time that you combine the two, you see the, them as um, having a deep accord with each other, and you even go as far as claiming that there is a new logic at work in our political systems that you call the techno-populist logic. And so my, my first question to you would be, what is techno-populism, and should, be, we, should we be worried about its rise? Is it a threat to our democracies? All right, well, thank you. As you say, populism and technocracy are usually treated as opposites. They're treated as the two threats of democracy today. Uh, and the, the, where we started from in writing this book, the key intuition that dr drives it is the idea that beyond this outer level of opposition, the technocrats as an elite kind of politics and the populism as a kind of bottom-up, people's mobilization, there is a deep level of complementarity between them. There is a deep affinity between populism and technocracy, which consists in the fact that both are, as we say, forms of politics of truth. 
Both populists and technocrats claim to possess a kind of truth. They appeal to the people's will, a reified idea of what the people's will is, or a kind of expertise that the technocrats claim to have access to. And as such, both are opposed to an, a different kind of politics, a, a party democracy, a, an idea where there are different parties and groups that represent different interests and values uh, and compete with each other within democratic procedures. Both populism and technocracy are therefore have the same enemies. Because they're both politics of truth, they are against parties, they're against procedures, they are against the normal organization of what we call party democracy. This complementarity that you talk about is manifested in the fact that many people, that, 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 that we see today many political actors that increasingly display characteristic features of both. Uh, that are both populist and technocrats. And we take several examples of that. Uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy, Beppe Grillo, began as a populist party, but also has many technocratic components in their conception of politics as problem solving. The Five Star are five policy areas they must solve. But also differently, Emmanuel Macron, the great expert of French politics uh, coming from the private sector, who then uh, has a populistic streak of a relationship with the people. These are different forms of mixing and mashing populist and technocratic elements. And therefore, to answer your question in one line, what is technopopulism? It's this new logic that's of politics today where competition amongst politicians is not anymore about left or right or less and less about left and right, but more and more about these appeals to the people and appeals to, to expertise and different ways in which they can be combined with one another. Yes, thanks, uh, thanks, Carlo, for your answer. Indeed, uh, I must say that one striking aspect of your argument is that some of the movements and even political leaders that you analyze as techno-populist are not usually considered populist at all. As a matter of fact, one, one of the most surprising for, for me uh, was Tony Blair, which you seem to, uh, to consider in the book almost the, um, the first techno-populist. Uh, Absolutely. So for us, Blair, the idea that Blair is a populist was has been developed at length by Peter Mayer. Uh, and uh, the idea there is that he replaced, for instance, the Labour Party's traditional appeal to the working class with an insistent appeal to the people. The language of the people taking, taking away the, the discourse of class from the party and appealing to the people was central in Blair's discourse from the beginning. Like the, uh, uh, the people's dome, the, Diana's funeral was the people's funeral. Uh, uh, the constant appeal to the people mixed with also a kind of technocratic post-ideological appeal. Uh, the, what matters is what works was one of the uh, slogans of New Labour. Neither left nor right, a third way. So again, you had this weird mixture of a depoliticized, technocratic, what matters is what works, together with a direct appeal to the people that bypasses intermediary bodies, that bypasses parties, and Blair appealing directly to the people, so also characteristically populist. Yes, Blair is one of our first examples, paradigmatic examples of technopopulism. Um, I would like for a moment to zoom in on the, the origins of technopopulism. One of the things I always try to do in this podcast is to, to explain the genealogy of certain problems that we are facing in their historical context. How did they 
come about? How did they develop? And I think this is one of the strengths of, of your argument that you actually have a strong historical um, grounding in everything you you argue. Um, um, so I I would ask you. I mean, one 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 of the striking quotes that you have there in, in explaining the origins of technopopulism, you you, you quote Tony Yud, the historian, uh, and you speak about the unbearable lightness of politics, and you explain that ultimately technopopulism is the the long term result of a divorce between politics and society, which emptied uh, politics and ideological polit- uh, politics of its original value content and created a new style and a new logical political competition, the techno-populist one. So could you, how how do you trace the development of techno-populism uh, historically? How did we go from the strong rooted uh, party, well-functioning party democracies of the 1950s and 60s to the very light, uh, um, destructured and well, one would, could say dysfunctional democracies that we have today? So. Thank you. This is an important question. The first thing I want to say, it's important to understand the novelty of technopopulism. Today, we are so embedded in this logic that we tend to think that politics was always about expertise and popularity. That wasn't everybody always appealing to the people. Wasn't everybody always claiming that they were competent. I think the first thing to explain it historically is to understand that, no, it wasn't like that. Traditionally, when party politics was stronger in the middle part of the 20th century, political parties were appealing to particular groups within society and specific values that were opposed to others. For example, labor parties would appeal to the working class, Christian democratic parties would appeal to Christian. uh, And Christians were not everyone, nor were the working class. So that was why they were parties, representing parts of societies, particular interests. In a context like that, it makes no sense to claim that you are more competent. Because if there is disagreement about the ends, there is no competence to to, to be had. There was a disagreement about what society should become, not who is more competent at achieving shared ends. And also the appeal to the people made no sense because there wasn't a unified people. There was a structured population with different groups within it. Mm -hmm. How do we move from a situation in which politics is structured in terms of these groups or these parties to a situation in which politicians appeal to these abstract ideas of the whole, like the truth or the people or competence? As you mentioned, our key claim is that this has to do with a process of separation between society and politics which for us has its roots in a crisis of the intermediary bodies between them. What are the intermediary bodies? Traditionally, the role of political parties is precisely to translate particular interests, particular values within society into uh, the general uh, policies that can be pursued at the level of the whole. But political parties are not the only instance of mediations. Trade unions, churches, civil society, these were the ways of structuring society so that groups could form and have an effect into politics. What happened over the course of the 20th century is that society began to be transformed. The groupings that existed began to be transformed. So class dealignment, 
uh, made the, the, the traditional cleavage between uh, proletariat and bourgeoisie less relevant. Secularization made the traditional division between Christian and non-Christian citizens more confused. Individualization, so society was changing, but because of a crisis of these intermediary bodies, parties did not renovate themselves. Trade unions did not renovate themselves. They continued to be organized according to the old bureaucratic forms of mobilization that existed previously and therefore failed to translate the new emerging social divisions into politics, leading to this disconnect, or what Peter Mayer calls a void between society and politics, that leaves a disorganized, individualized society on one hand, and increasingly self-referential politics on the other hand, and this politics, in order to appeal to an individualized society, use, makes appeals to the whole, to the people, to the truth, because they have no appeal to specific interests or values within society. So that's our argument of how the disconnect between society and politics, which is rooted in a crisis of intermediary bodies, leads to the rise of populism and technocracy, the people as the, and expertise, as the new structuring poles of contemporary democratic politics. Thanks, Carlo. It's very interesting because in a way you are, uh, a lot of the remedies that are normally proposed for the democratic malaise uh, tend to be very creative and tend to look outside uh, traditional party structures. They tend to consider traditional party structures as doomed. Well, you, you are telling us, as a matter of fact, that uh, the most viable form of democracy we have known and probably we can know is to be structured around a variety of societal interests and uh, sent political parties having a central role in mediating between this particular interest and the general interest. Absolutely. This is a, a, maybe the core normative intuition of our book. Today, both on the populist side and on the technocratic side, there is this uh, myth of disintermediation. The idea uh, that politics has to be more direct, citizens' interests and values have to be directly represented into the, into the policy outcomes. And an interesting paradox is that precisely as uh, politicians claim to represent the people more directly and to be competent at doing what they want, people hate them more and more. Right? We have seen a growing discontent with democratic politicians precisely as going along with this process of disintermediation. Uh, the, the more direct, uh, it would seem paradoxical, but the more dissatisfied. And for us, there is a good reason why this, which is rooted in an important insight from democratic theory, clearly articulated by the great Hans Kelsen already in the 1920s. What is the idea? The idea is that individuals are too marginal too insignificant to be able to have an, act, uh, an impact on the level of politics as a whole. Me as an individual, I count for nothing. My vote is infinitesimal in a country like Italy or even uh, a polity like the European Union. It is only by banding together with others, by forming groups, by forming communities, by forming societies of like-minded people, that we can act on the whole. So if you have the individual against the whole, as the great tradition of Christian democracy has always taught, you have authoritarianism. The mechanisms of intermediation between them are always necessary precisely to allow individuals to have an impact on the whole. So it's not a coincidence that as politicians claim to bypass intermediary bodies, people feel less and less represented. Because these intermediary bodies, which are mistakenly presented as the 
obstacle to representation are actually the vehicle of representation. Parties, trade unions, churches, civil society, and of course the much maligned media are essential to the sense of effective representation. Indeed, well, you 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 said uh, you mentioned Christian democracy, and I must say that reading your your argument, I was reminded of a great deal of Christian democratic theories on society and democracy that seems to go exactly in the direction that you said. Of course, we, we all remember uh, Kelsen's important and famous book on, on liberal democracy. Uh, but I, my, my instinct was to say, uh, in a way, what you are doing, you are, you are rediscovering arguments that were not untypical um, in uh, early conservative Christian democratic or even liberal conservative reflections on the normative risks of, of, of mass democracies and ex excessive individualization and atomization in our societies, because there was an awareness that this could, could lead to plebiscitarian and authoritarian risks. I, I'm thinking of Tocqueville already, right, in, in his analysis of, uh, of American democracy. Um, or even, as you said, I, I think that one of the remedies that, for example, Christian Democrats developed um, is the concept of subsidiarity. Uh, you, by the way, I, I forgot to mention that apart from being um, a scholar of uh, uh, democracy and, and, and populism and technocracy, uh, you have also written one of the standard uh, textbook on, on Christian democracy, which I really recommend to our listeners if they're interested in a, in a good, uh, comprehensive, uh, solid um, introduction in the in the theory and in the historical um, practice of Christian democracy. Your, your treatise from a couple of years ago is, is an excellent uh, reference. So it seems to me that you, you are, in a, in a way, a, a lot of what you are saying rings strikingly Christian democratic and conservative to me, or am I wrong in attaching this normative label to it? You're wrong in attaching that normative label to me, but you're not wrong in saying that there is an important element of overlap between the Christian democratic idea of democracy and the liberal democratic idea of democracy in the idea of the importance of uh, intermediary bodies and uh, civil society and, the, uh, uh, and all these the, the middle layer of politics in preserving against authoritarianism. Uh, let's say there's the Tocqueville on the conservative side, or Montesquieu is another person who not a Christian Democrat, more, more in the liberal tradition, also defends the importance of intermediary bodies. But if you want to pursue, the, which as you know, interests me very much, this Christian democratic theme, I think an, in, an interesting distinction to draw there is between the Christian democratic tradition of popularism, the European People's Party, the popular party in Italy, and the notion of populism. Because here you see really the difference in the ideas of democracy. The, the populist people is a people that is constructed by opposition. If you read Laclau, the people is defined by what is not. It is defined by its other. It is defined by excluding the immigrant, the elite, the other. The Christian democratic idea of the people, the popularist notion, not the populist, the popularist notion of the people is internally structured. It is internally structured according to an idea of the person, the community, the neighborhood, the family. The, so it's, it is a structured, organically integrated idea of the people, which is not defined by what it opposes, but it is defined by its own internal organizational structure. Precisely this key Christian concept of mediation, uh, between the two, there is always a third, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, right. 
it's always a third. The, the idea of mediation being central to Christianity is also a central idea of the Christian democratic tradition that you always need a mediating organism. Between the people and the individual, there is a whole host of intermediary organizations according to the logic of subsidiarity you were mentioning. But let me emphasize, this is only one way of understanding democracy. I think there is a perfectly consistent liberal democratic or even social democratic uh, idea of democracy, which gives an important role to intermediary bodies. And then maybe I dare say that what made the strength of the traditional European democracy was that overlap. The conflict between social Democrats and Christian Democrats overlapped in the, of, as the word itself tell you, on an idea of democracy as this organized conflict uh, which sustained a strong idea of representation. Today, conflict is seen as illegitimate. Paradoxically, even populists who claim to have conflict, they agree with conflict with the outside, but there's no conflict in the people. Between the people, there's no legitimacy of conflict. So uh, this is what uh, is different from the populist and the popularist. The legitimacy of conflict among people who agree to disagree, as opposed to treat each other as enemies. Very, very important and very insightful points, which I could not have put better myself. Well, after all, you are the expert for Christian democracy. Uh, so indeed, I am happy that you pursued that line because I, I think it's very interesting. Um, help us, Carlo, understand a little bit better, uh, since you have mentioned you know, Christian democracy, social democracy, what does the rise of techno-populism as a logic means for the center-right and the center-left, let's say, the, the, the traditional political parties um, that we have known are they are they doomed? As some people have said, because we are moving beyond the, the left-right uh, axis divide in our uh, politics, and there are new cleavages emerging. Um, we are moving towards societies which are so political systems that are structured on other cleavages: open versus closed, globalists versus um, nationalists, or uh, do you think that the, the left-right axis, and therefore to an extent also uh, traditional center-right and center-left parties are the best, maybe even the only possible way of organizing stable democracies and are here to stay. What, what, what's your take on this? So you're asking me to do what for political scientists is the most difficult thing, which is to look into the future. I Let me remind us, like as Hegel says, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. <laughs> this book that we wrote was an attempt to understand what we have seen in the past few decades. And what we have seen in the past few decades is a profound crisis of uh, the left-right axis and uh, sparked by a process of, first of all, convergence between them, or as Peter Mayer would put it, cartelization between the center-left and center-right parties that is very much manifest at the level of the European Parliament, where they have basically been locked in a grand coalition for a very long time, uh, and which we claim has been very harmful for democratic competition and democratic opposition, this, this constant grand coalition, which only lean, leaves room for a kind of anti-system opposition. So techno-populism is tied with a decline of the traditional dialectic between of opposition between center-left and center-right. When they all converge, they become obviously more technocratic and the opposition becomes populist. Does this mean that what this logic is destined to become stronger and stronger forever and that the left and right are dead? No, I don't necessarily think so. 
I don't necessarily think so. Many people have pre uh, uh, already prophesied the end of ideology, the end of history, the end of parties. I, I tend to have a more open-ended idea. I think that what we have been seeing over the past few decades is a crisis of the ideological group basis of democratic politics in Europe, for the reasons we have said, because of the crisis of in these intermediary bodies. But I do maintain the hope of a revitalization of these mechanisms of intermediation of these political parties, of, of, the, of all the instances that make democracy work, uh, which would re require their organizational transformations. Obviously, the parties of today cannot be the Volkspartei of the 1950s. Society has been transformed. But parties, this is what we argue in the book, parties that were to be more reflexive of the society they're in, more internally democratic. Today, people are not the people of the 1950s who were willing to go and follow the party line and follow the discipline of the 1950s. People are more individualized. People are more educated. People are more willing to get involved on their own terms. So parties that leave that space for internal reflection, for internal democracy, I think could be revitalized. And this could lead to a renewal of ideological conflict, group-based, interest-based ideological conflict, which itself in our reading would lead to a renewal of democracy. So our book doesn't want to play into the democracy dying kind of discourse. There is a crisis because of the crisis of mediation, but this is not destiny. This is politics. And in politics, there's always an opportunity of changing if the parties are willing to change, if the churches, I dare say, are willing to change, if the trade unions are willing to correspond more to the society and allow people to express themselves for their true interests now, I don't see democracy as doomed. And I see the, the possibility of reviving the dialectic between parties, absolutely. For instance, well. if I can add, sorry, sure. we're seeing this already in many ways over the coronavirus. Over the, the, the real political distinctions can always reemerge between a more right-leaning idea of freedom, which is more individualistic, and a more left-leaning, which is more collectivistic. There are many ways in which politics can always reemerge. Uh, thanks, thanks, Carlo. Indeed, I was stricken by your point on the on the cartelization of European political parties because it's a point that I myself have been making for a few years now, within, also within the EPP. And indeed, my own research agenda to an extent is about, as you know, um, rediscovering a sort of center-right, Christian democratic, conservative vision of European unity that is alternative to the social democratic, to the liberal, to the green, and that can create precisely that diversity of forms of party intermediation that is now lacking and that is prevented in a way by the tendency to, to uh, frame the, the European political debate as mainstream, pro-European mainstream against um, Eurosceptic populist. I, I really think that that damaged um, democracy a great deal. So I agree with you. I would like to, for a moment, to zoom now in on the EU because the, the EU does not play a very prominent role in your book. And I found that um, striking to an extent. Um, it seems to me that there are two dimensions in which the EU comes in and you, you, I would be happy for you to comment on them and tell me what you think. The first is as a possible causal, um, as a possible cause of techno-populism. And this is not novel. I mean, there is a long literature you were quoting before uh, Peter Mayer. Peter Mayer has been 
uh, as I give together with other, uh, that advanced international and European integration meant a certain depoliticization, meant a certain uh, also uh, an increase of the separation between society and politics that ultimately in your in your framework uh, drives the rise of technopopulism. So uh, would you say that the EU is one of the causes of technopopulism or would it be excessive? I think we have to be very careful here because I do not think that integration EU integration as such is necessarily a cause of technopopulism. It depends how EU integration is done. And as we know, there are many strands of European integration in the complex European history uh, and many different views of how EU integration should be done. Uh, one strand which has been dominant and can be traced back all the way to Monet is a technocratic functionalist elite-driven, top-down approach, where the idea is that elites make a few agreements of uh, uh, policy integration, which then necessitate the next ones, and therefore effectively bypass popular support. Uh, that type of integration is very dangerous for democracy, is inherently technocratic, and exactly as Peter Mayer says, does lead to an anti-system opposition of people who say, then throw the whole system down because they feel locked into uh, an infernal machine that goes uh, is all, all goes towards ever closer integration without anybody ever being able to will it or stop it. But throughout the history of European integration, there have been other ideas of how European integration should proceed. And here I'll come back to something you were mentioning before, both from the center left and the center right. So on the center right, probably more influential, the Christian democratic idea, the Nouvelles Equipes Internationales, was this bottom-up idea of integration of Christian democratic parties from across Europe, based on political affinities, based on values, based on a vision. So a very political bottom-up process based on an affinity of values. And here I can refer to the other three famous founding fathers, Schumann, the uh, Gasperi and Adenauer, who all shared a Christian democratic background. But at the same time, on the left, there was also another bottom-up view, more political view, the, the view of Spinelli, the view that still uh, Altiero Spinelli saw European integration as a constituent moment of the peoples of Europe coming together. So is the EU necessarily opposed to, uh, is the EU necessarily opposed to democracy or necessarily technopopulist? No. There is a technopopulist idea of Europe, Monet's idea of Europe, and there is a political idea of Europe, which is both rooted in a Christian democratic heritage with the Nouvelles Equipes Internationales, the Gasper Adenauer, and the social democratic tradition going back to Spinelli. So there is another Europe is possible, a more political one. The dominant one for now has been this more technopopulist one. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, as you know, I, I find, however much I respect him, I find Spinelli's view of Europe um, way too centralistic. And I, I have a rather a penchant for the Christian democratic idea of subsidiary Europe constructed from the bottom up, but I see what you mean. Um, so, but this, going back to what you were saying, the revitalization of the center right idea of Europe based on Christian democratic values. I don't come from that tradition 
I don't necessarily share those values, but I recognize their importance in the European tradition. And I want a Europe that's political where that kind of disagreement is possible. The disagreement between me and you, I'm more maybe on the social democratic side, you're more on the Christian democratic side. That dialectic is political and that's Europe. So okay. I, want, I want you <laughs> to be part of the picture of Europe that we have. And, and, and I think we need that. In fact, I think that probably, the center-left idea of Europe is the one that's more in crisis now than the Christian democratic one, but both are weakened, very weak, and suffering with respect to the more techno-populist, technocratic and populist vision. Indeed, indeed, I agree. Um, maybe the last question, and maybe the most uncomfortable question, but I, I think uh, it is fair to, de to debate it because the EU comes into play, or rather, as you said, this sort of uh, more technocratic strand that that has been dominant for for well in a way since the beginning with some exceptions um, of the EU comes into play as a possible cause of technopopulism. But I wonder, I would like to pick your brains on whether, in fact, we we do not see a certain technopopulist style of politics taking hold in the EU and the EU institutions themselves over the last roughly 10 years. As you said, the technocratic strand is an ancient one. Um, it goes back all the way to Monet's attempts, uh, successful attempts to shield you know, the high authority of the coal and steel community, which then became the commission from essentially political uh, oversight. But I have the impression that to this technocratic dimension, we added a certain populistic dimension over the last 10 years, because there was an attempt partly as a as a reaction to the populist backlash, to open up European institutions, to pretend that they are in a listening mode. And to an extent, well, the Conference of the Future of Europe might even be, it depends on how it is, on how it is handled, might be even be an expression of that sort of techno-populist logic. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's a very interesting point. The EU started as an elite-driven technocratic process. Monet, uh, whether it was a good idea of Europe or not, I don't know, but it was an effective one. So Europe started as being organized in this functionalistic way. I would say even more than 10 years ago, more or less around the 1990s after the Maastricht Treaty, Europe understood that it couldn't continue to be just an elite driven technocratic process. It had to get popular legitimation and that it became worried about its political legitimacy and decided it discovered its own so-called democratic deficit and decided to gain popular legitimation and to become democratic. But the conception of democracy that, that, that was appealed to at that time and up to the conference that is currently going on in the future of Europe was a distinctly populist conception, which is the mirror image of the technocratic one. If you will, there was a top-down idea of democracy, that, of, of leadership that ruled the, the early phases of integration. Beginning in the 1990s, they think we need bot legitimation bottom-up. And top-down and bottom-up are two uh, sides of the same coin. And you see it's not just in the Conference for the Future of Europe, in the practice of referendums. Europe tried to legitimate itself in this very uh, bottom-up idea, which is the, the, the referendum. Individualized people have to vote by majority. And this is a very simplistic, and I say populistic, idea of democracy, which precisely ignores that other dimension, which we were talking about before. It's not either top-down or bottom-up, it's middle-out democracy. It's from the center, it's from the st structuring organisms that structure society that you can build democracy, as even Aristotle knew. So. 
you yes i agree that europe has been techno populist because when it wanted to compensate for its technocracy it appealed to a populist idea of democracy through referendums and also through this conference on europe where elites summon people to talk amongst each other about how to solve it the real solution to the democratic deficit in europe is what we were talking about before a revitalization of european parties a revitalization of intermediary bodies a revitalization of the european parliament such that it's not this cartelized body where you always have a perpetual grand coalition, but a real deliberative assembly where people like you and I who disagree can sort out their disagreements democratically. And that, that would be European uh, democracy, not periodically having a disorganized mass of people approve in a plebiscitarian way what the elites have decided. Well, I completely agree. Uh, Carlo, thanks for saying that and for saying it so clearly and so powerfully. I still think you are a crypto Christian Democrat somehow. <laughs> All my friends think that. Uh, but uh, well, that, that's no that's no insult, especially coming from me. Anyway, I, I'm afraid we have to wrap it up. We could continue forever because the, the topic is very broad and very rich. The book is very rich. So I uh, invite all listeners who who uh, found the conversation interesting to to read the book because there is much more into it than I could uh, than we could uh, pick up in the conversation. Technopopulism: The New Logic of Democratic Politics, published by Oxford University Press uh, this year. Well, I can only say that you have given us a much better understanding of what's going on. Um, you have given us some hope that it can be remedied because at times, you know, democratic theorists this, this day are very gloomy. Uh, and I think also some realistic indications of how it could be remedied by revitalizing, as you said, intermediate bodies and even political parties. So it's a positive, we end on a positive message. And uh, I thank you for that. And I thank everybody for listening. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.